Hey, this is Zane Horowitz and the Oregon Poisoning Center once again with our Journal Club for October 24th, 2011. And today we're somewhat belatedly uh, celebrating uh, the 150th anniversary, sesquicentennial anniversary of the Periodic Table of Elements. So I pull a little bit of background. I have a, an article from a journal we haven't actually covered before. Uh, the journal is called Talanta, which is a Russian journal. Uh, it's published in English, but from this year, it talks a little bit about the discoverer, Mendeleev, Dmitri Mendeleev, and uh, how he, uh, at the time, you know, like most things being discovered, this wasn't happening in a vacuum, and he wasn't just looking at this. There was other people who had published different versions of sort of a way to organize the known elements in the world in 1800. Uh, but um, there was a, a German chemist working on it called Julius Luther Meyer, and there had been a version by an English person um, as well at the time. Uh, I think his name was um, Newlands, and they published a variety of tables. But the way the story is told is Mendeleev had been pondering this for a while and then woke up from a dream, and he said, quote, I had a dream, I saw the table where all the elements fell into place, and I immediately wrote them down, and there was the periodic table of elements. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about um, some select. We can't cover them all, and certainly what them all means has grown since I was in chemistry in high school when there was only like 103. We've gone up to 118, in case anyone's keeping track, um, to uh, sort of honor Mendeleev. He was uh, given element number 101, and to show you sort of the six degrees of separation that goes on here, Mendelevian was made by bombarding Einsteinium, element number 99, with alpha particles. It was uh, done by Glenn Seaborg, who was named uh, element number 106 Seaborgium. And uh, it was done at Berkeley, hence we have Berkelium element number 97 in California, Californium element 99. Our Lawrence Livermore Labs, Laurentium number 103, and Livermorium in the new expanded 116. So there's your six degrees of separation on your chemical elements. We're going to talk about some more obscure ones today. I'm going to start off with a couple of things that we actually put in people that may or may not cause toxicity, and probably the most controversial ones, got to get them on the table first. So to start off, um, we have our fellow uh, John Thompson talking about cobalt, a little bit about chromium, cobalt element number 27, chromium number 24. John. Yeah, so the article that I reviewed was uh, Metal on Metal Hip Joint Prostheses, a retrospective case series investigating the association of systemic toxicity with serum cobalt and chromium concentrations by Ho et al. Um, this was published in 2017 in the Journal of Medical Toxicology. Um, of note, two of the authors were paid consultants at the time for um, companies that made metal-on-metal metal hip prostheses. I think one is still a paid consultant. Um, so what they did is they did a retrospective review of um, patient, patients that were referred in London um, for evaluation of um, toxicity secondary to metal-on-metal metal hip replacements. And they also looked at the Toxicology Investigators Consortium, or TOXIC registry, from June 2011 to 2015 in the US. Um, a little bit of background on metal-on-metal -metal hip replacements. They initially came out in the 1930s, um, and then kind of went down in popularity in the 60s, and then they had another resurgence. 
um, in the 80s. Um, there was concern over the last decade um, about a high failure rate that resulted in a worldwide uh, recall of many of these metal and metal hip replacements. Um, and there was concern um, of cobalt or chromium toxicity within patients that had these metal on metal hip replacements. Um, to that end, the UK established a guideline of a cobalt concentration greater than seven micrograms per liter as a threshold to further investigate um, if someone had um, cobalt toxicity. Um, and the FDA still does not have a recommendation. There's no threshold at this point. Um, there are a couple older studies they do mention. Um, Bradbury et al. was one of the ones that they talked about, which reviewed 18 cases. Um, and out of those cases that had positive toxicity, all of those cobalt concentrations were greater than 250 micrograms per liter. Um, and they all had initially um, ceramic uh, hip replacements that were subsequently replaced by metal on metal. And it was thought that these ceramic um, deposition within the tissues was maybe breaking up some of the metal-on-metal -metal, um, hip replacement and releasing cobalt and chromium into the tissues. Um, the, since that time, the only repeat case series was in the U.S., which looked at 39 metal-on-metal -metal hip replacements and um, looked at metal concentrations that were 10 times elevated than people without metal-on-metal. Um, and they found no self-correlation between concentrations and incidence of systemic symptoms. Of oh, no, that is one of the author's previous papers that they cited. Um, so they developed this study, and um, as I said, they went through the toxic registry and um, London toxicology referral, um, and they found 17 cases in the U.S., 14 in London. Uh, majority of those, 74%. Uh, had a unilateral hip replacement. Some did have bilateral metal-on-metal -metal hip replacements. This is in table one. Um, and they looked at the peak cobalt and chromium concentrations. Um, and across all of those, they did not see a significantly different um, value between the UK cohort and the US cohort. Um, they then looked through all these cases for people with symptoms and they kind of stratified them with a concentration of cobalt that was less than seven micrograms per liter or greater than seven micrograms per liter per the um, London's recommendation. Um, and they found that the um, symptomatic people with a cobalt less than seven micrograms per liter was eight um, and then 15 had a um, concentration greater or 15 had a concentration greater than 7 micrograms per liter, um, which was not statistically significant uh, with a p-value of 0.38. Um, and same thing for the chromium there. They had 8 with a concentration greater than 7 and 10 with a concentration less than 7 that were symptomatic. And again, they, their p-value was 0.92. Um, within this uh, case series, um, the most commonly reported symptoms were lethargy and malaise hearing loss and tinnitus, really kind of non-specific things was the most common, was just like lethargy and fatigue. Um, there were two patients within this case series that they did talk about that had, um, they felt had systemic cobalt toxicity. Um, case one was a person with bilateral metal-on-metal -metal hip replacements. It had increased pain for the last seven years. They developed lethargy and distal numbness. 
and paresthesias, their cobalt concentration was 168 micrograms per liter. Um, and then they had a revision and their repeat concentration was 8.5. Um, and they had a uh, subjective improvement in their symptoms. Case two was a um, person who was 16 years post-operative from the replacement and they had numbness, tinnitus, and they had a concentration of 1,096 micrograms per liter, so much higher. They had developed optic neuropathy and a peripheral axonal neuropathy. There was also a report of hypothyroidism in that patient, um, and that was ultimately a fatal case, I believe. Um, so they looked at all of these symptoms as well to see if there's any statistical significant, statistically significant difference between the um, patients above or below seven micrograms per liter. The only thing based on their um, cohort in table three was uh, numbness and paresthesias. Um, and that actually wasn't statistically significant, but that was the um, closest with a p-value of 0.13. So overall, they had nothing that was statistically significant. Um, the people with systemic toxicity had hypothyroidism, cardiomyopathy, um, but again, they only had two cases within their um, series, so they can't really say that that was significant. Um, overall, they um, compared the cobalt concentrations to unexposed people, which have a normal concentra a concentration between 0.7 and 2.7 micrograms per liter, um, and they found that the UK recommendation of investigating over seven micrograms per liter had a sensitivity of 52% and a specificity of 89%, but there was no clear dose response based on their study. Um, so ultimately they said that there was no clear uh, dose response based on cobalt toxicity and symptoms, and there was no clear association between toxicity and symptoms. Um, kind of looking at this and looking at the like cobalt literature, I think that, you know, the people who have systemic toxicity usually have the end organ damage, the cardiomyopathy, hypothyroidism, um, and like paresthesias, um, the less specific symptoms like fatigue, it, you really really hard to attribute to a systemic toxicity, I think, at this time. I know there is an MRI test that can look for uh, deposition in tissues, but I don't think that, I don't know if there's anything clear on that to also say if that is specific. You know, it's a very special technique. You would think if you have metal in your body, most people in radiology would be not anxious to do an MRI on you. But, uh, but a lot of these are non-magnetic implants and there's a special technique they can use to look for that. I don't know the details, but it's available. Um, we do get some calls in these, I'm sure all other poison centers and tox consultants who maybe out there listening do, and I don't think there's a clear-cut answer. Um, England has this concentration in your blood threshold where you should be investigated, but nobody really has a GFL levels above this, where you have this constellation of symptoms, you should have your hip replacements redone with something else. Obviously, if you have no evidence of heart failure, certainly if this is an age group, where people have heart failure, people have hypothyroidism, and people have started have hearing loss, and people have started to have visual loss, and so if you dissect out those issues in 60, and 70, and 80 year olds from what's just aging, 
and what's part of this constellation is hard. I imagine if you have documented neuropathy and cardio cardiomyopathy and maybe a visual deficit, then maybe that's enough data to have a discussion about whether or not if your cobalt levels are high, something needs to be done about it. But unfortunately, I think we get some calls like somebody you know, weak, tired, they get a level done and then their physician, whether it's the orthopedist or their internal medicine doctor calls us and says their level is X, what do I do with it now? I don't know, I mean, part of the answer is you can get referred to a specialty clinic like these clinics, like the one in Chicago that looks at this, or you can get a big workup for all these things that potentially cobalt can do and see how bad your, if any, of these organs that are affected are. I mean, there was indeed cobalt-induced cardiomyopathy done in the era of when there was the beer that was stabilized for cobalt, and those people were sick, but they were also nutritionally depleted, and there's a variety of variables. So um, there's a plausible, you know, mechanism that cobalt does affect the heart due to these old studies, but whether or not anybody with a level that's just above seven is going to have these problems, it's hard to say. I think uh, you know one of the authors of this does have a clinic where he does consult on, on these. He's written about this before. Um, it's an interesting problem, and unfortunately, we don't have a clear-cut answer other than to be aware that it's out there. We put these. I put a metal in your body. I'm not surprised that if I test for that metal years later, it's going to be elevated. So, questions: Does it cause symptoms? How long? Well, jumping a little bit to another metal on uh, the periodic table elements that we put in your body, we're going to jump to gadolinium number 64 uh, atomic uh, number. Um, this one's also um, new and also controversial, and maybe to help us wade through some of this is our fellow Jen Love. Yes. And so the paper that I had was called Gadolinium Retention and Toxicity, an update um, from the Journal on Advanced Chronic Kidney Disease. Um, and this was a paper published in 2017. Um, and the paper is a well-organized review of the various um, disease categories surrounding uh, gadolinium. Um, gadolinium is a um, dye that is used in MRI imaging, um, and there are various uh, gadolinium-based contrast agents that can be used in MRI. Um, sort of tracing the history of gadolinium in MRI imaging and its effect on um, human patients. So um, the sort of um, condition that we are most familiar with in terms of gadolinium toxicity is called nephrogenic systemic uh, fibrosis. Um, it was first described in 1997 um, in pati 15 patients who uh, were on dialysis um, and sort of five years later was recognized as a um, disease uh, state that was attributable to um, gadolinium. Um, administration with MRI. Um, most notably, it was patients who had underlying renal failure and were given a gadolinium contrast agent. Um, and luckily, um, because the 
radiology community has been much more stringent in terms of uh, patients who um, have renal insufficiency and get gadolinium dye, um, as well as uh, adjusting the, the contrast agents that they use, there's been actually no new cases of uh, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis since 2009. So that's almost a 10, this article was published in 2017, so you know, a eight to 10 year period, um, which is great. Um, what the article does sort of review um, are these two other uh, conditions. Um, one is called gadolinium storage condition. So we know that in patients with um, normal renal function, gadolinium can be um, found in the, deposited in the brain. Um, and that is in the, um, that is in the presence of an intact blood-brain barrier. Um, it was first suggested um, in 2014 where um, a series of patients showed uh, increased signal intensity in the dentate and in the globus pallidus, but we actually can see gadolinium deposits in all different types of brain tissue, although the higher concentrations are in these two specific parts of the brain. Um, and they noted it was more common with certain types of contrast agents, so linear contrast agents as opposed to um, these macrocyclic contrast agents, which have a different type of molecule that's bound to uh, the gadolinium. Um, we also know that gadolinium deposits in the bone, in the skin, and in the liver based on some limited studies that have been done. And they don't know exactly the mechanism of uptake and deposition. Um, there's some thought that the molecule becomes unchelated or dechelated, I guess is the right word, uh, dechelated and then binds to larger organic molecules um, and then deposits in the brain, um, whether that is by active metal transporters or passive diffusion. Um, there was some speculation as to whether this was due to albumin, but we know that albumin is too big to cross the blood-brain barrier, and so we don't think that that is the suspected mechanism. Another hypothesized mechanism is through this um, glymphatic uh, system, which I did some reading about, which is a waste clearance system that's based off of the perivascular tunnels that are made by astroglial cells, um, and is that one way that this gets deposited. Um, there's clearly not enough um, research uh, to really know exactly. They think that it's probably multifactorial um, by active transporters, potentially some of this passive transport, and potentially this glymphatic uh, system. Um, but the thing is that there's really no clinical significance to this. So um, these patients, um, who have this gadolinium deposition in their brain tissue have no clinical findings um, associated with it. However, the authors go on to also discuss um, another condition called gadolinium deposition disease, um, which has been recognized um, by some of the medical community in 2006. Um, and gadolinium deposition disease um, is uh, patients who have um, symptoms, um, not an agreed upon set of symptoms, but symptoms and have gadolinium deposited um, in their um, brain um, and in, uh, they have elevated gadolinium uh, urine concentrations. 
And so there is question as to whether this is an unrecognized disease state um, that these patients are gadolinium toxic. Um, the literature around this is very limited. The authors um, discuss a few studies, two of which were survey studies, sort of of the general community of online um, uh, online sufferers, I guess, um, and online communities who describe these symptoms and describe being exposed to gadolinium um, from MRI imaging. Um, and they talk about um, the timing of their exposure and um, the variety of symptoms that they have, um, which included central pain, peripheral pain, headache and bone pain, um, some skin thickening, although not the skin thickening that we typically think of in um, NSF, which is more like hard, woody skin changes. These were like soft, doughy skin changes. Um, some glove and stock, uh, uh, glove and sock pattern of um, neur like uh, neuropathy. Um, and uh, there's a small cohort of patients that um, they also studied and did uh, urine collection on that had elevated 24 hour uh, urine gadolinium uh, concentrations that had sort of this constitution of symptoms. Um, and they said maybe these patients are displaying signs of gadolinium toxicity. Um, I think that the authors in this case um, are appropriately speculating that gadolinium deposition could have some tox systemic toxic effects on uh, humans. Um, I think that some of the uh, description and concern around the possibility of gadolinium deposition disease as a disease state comes from um, the delay in identifying things like nephrogenic systemic um, or fibrosis and the gadolinium storage condition, they didn't really recognize that gadolinium was deposited into the, in the brain for quite some period of time. So um, I think it's hard to make the conclusion that the symptoms that the patients are experiencing are directly related to the um, gadolinium that they have, um, but because they're also related with some of the disease states that they're getting the MRI imaging for, such as multiple sclerosis. Um, but I think it warrants further research um, and bigger studies to sort of evaluate if um, gadol like gadolinium deposition due to multiple MRI imaging could have some systemic toxic effects was sort of what I gathered from um, a lot of the article. Um, sort of in line with what uh, John's article was, the senior author on this paper is um, sort of the leading expert radiologist, first person who's ever described um, gadolinium deposition disease um, and consults very extensively on this. Um, and so there is um, just, you have to weigh that um, bias um, when evaluating uh, the paper.
Yeah, no, real quick summary on a evolving and still controversial subject. I think, you know, the thing that's not disputed is that um, in the early days of gadolinium, where we thought MRIs were safe and a great answer to CTs, um, we discovered that if you use the linear gadolinium compounds, you had renal dysfunction, especially if you had a lot of MRIs, you did get this definitive thing that was called NSF, which we now it may go away by not using those compounds and screening for renal disease. But is there something more subtle that happens with the gadolinium that clearly stays in your brain longer? Does it react? Does it not react? Is it immunologic? No one knows. Um, but there are some people coming in with symptoms. And these experts uh, say you should get a 24-hour urine collection a month after your last exposure and then do a workup just like kind of with the cobalt, like looking for what they're complaining of more extensively, a lot of other things, uh, nerve conduction studies, whatnot, and before you attribute it to this, um, they suggest this may be chelatable. I'm sure there's people out there that are doing stuff like that, but um, I don't know at this point if we can make that recommendation based on any constellation of symptoms, no matter how severe, or any level, no matter how elevated, um, and again, it's going to take some time to sort out, is it just a single or multiple types of agents? Because there's maybe something like 20 gadolinium-containing compounds that are still on the market being used with, with, for legitimate purposes all being used. So it's tough because it's a very useful study, and very, very few people have this problem. So, But something we may get calls on. Um, jumping to um, another agent, which sometimes we use pharmacologically, a bismuth number 83 atomic number, um, kind of reasonably near to our, our, our hearts, and we had a similar event as described in this case report out of uh, San Francisco uh, toxicology group called, this article is Bismuth Subgaliate Toxicity in the Age of Online Supplement Use. Uh, this is just a case report, but indicative of other case reports because they do make a little table of all the other 45 cases that existed in the literature. So this case was a 50-year-old woman. She had some bowel problems with herbal bowel symptoms and presented with this subacute disorientation, inattention, memory loss, and tremor. She was brought to the attention of Ernst Room when she kind of like drove her car into the parking lot of where she lived and was brought in without injury and she got admitted. She was confused, unable to recount events. Uh, she had an extensive workup, which included a negative CT, negative MRI, negative lumbar puncture. Um, they thought she had seizures. Uh, they gave her IV valproate for that. They thought maybe she could have uh, herpes. They gave her um, acyclovir, methylprednisone for that. They gave her a little Haldol. Um, and then they kept her for um, 20 days, and then they finally transferred her to a neurology service at a tertiary care facility. But they repeated some of that stuff. Uh, when she was there, 20 days after the incident, she still had um, a restricted affect speech that was still fluent, uh, a lot of inattention, left side neglect, uh, acalculia, apraxia, and just as a baseline, she was like a computer programming person, so a high level of so at least baseline uh, education, so she couldn't do these things. Um, she had some illusions, like she claimed that there was a broken window in the room where she was, and there wasn't. Um, she had a little slow saccades of her eyes with a positive glabella sign. 
Um, she had rigidity throughout. She had multifocal myoclonic jerks, exaggerated startle response, um, hyperreflexia, uh, and bilateral ankle clonus. <coughs> Sounds a lot like maybe serotonin syndrome, but she wasn't on any serotonergic agents and had been in the hospital for 20 days. They did more lab testing. They like threw the neurologic book at her. They got another brain MRI. Uh, she had a slight flare, hyperintensity in the subcortical white matter. They got a CSF and they sent it for amyloid, beta, tau, the prion protein 1433, neurospecific analase, vitamin B12, methylmalonic acidemia, homocystinuria, on and on and on. Every test in the book, including one of our recent favorites is the antibodies for uh, N-methyl D-aspirate NMDA receptor antibodies. She had none of that, none of that at all. So finally, uh, Sherlock Holmes to the rescue, they called a tox consult and they actually talked to her uh, when she was kind of clearing up. Now granted, she probably was pretty confused and not talkable to, but she had been using an over-the-counter product called Devron. I believe was the name of it, D-E-V-R-O-M, Devram, uh, for her irritable bowel syndrome, and it turned out to be this bismuth subgalliate, not too different than Pepto. Bismol, uh, vitamins are in there. There was like a small amount of lithium orotate, a sort of not very potent uh, amount of 10 milligrams of lithium in there. And then over time, they, they sort of got levels. This was like almost a month later, and they had bismuth levels that were in the serum that was 44.4 milligrams per deciliter. Normally should be zero, um, or essentially less than one. Uh, the urine had 57. Normal should be less than seven and a half. And CSF had um, 15.25 and 15.89 micrograms in duplicate assays that were sent off. So pretty much the same level of 15. They attributed this to bismuth toxicity. And to talk a little bit about that and what to expect and what to work up, and I think they clearly documented that even what was essentially 30 days later, she still had retained bismuth in her system where there really should be none. Uh, bismuth is available in a bunch of preparations, certainly Pepto-Bismol has subsalicylate in it, this flatulent deodorizer, Devron, um, is a chewable uh, tablet uh, capsule of 200 milligrams of bismuth subgalliate. It's sold on the internet, even though the FDA has a warning that says, based on evidence of currently available data, there is inadequate data to establish general recognition of safety and effectiveness of these ingredients. And of course, the website says, this is an FDA approved drug. Uh, complete contradiction of what the FDA actually said about the drug. Uh, it's been used as a paste for hemorrhoid and wound healing and a bunch of other things. Um, but it's pretty much marketed uh, over-the-counter, which, which it is an over-the-counter product. They go ahead and make a nice little table of both case reports and case series, of which there's been about 40, 45 in the literature, and the sort of way these people present is with a slowly progressive encephalopathy with confusion, tremor, myoclonic jerks, ataxia, um, and, um, and, and some people present acutely with bismuth uh, nephropathy, but if taking it chronically, it's usually just the CNS stuff as it accumulates in the brain. Some people have rashes, some people have diarrhea, although it's hard to separate from what they may have been treating themselves for. Peripheral neuropathy, as we mentioned with the other two metals we just talked about, can show up. And a few people have a bismuth gum 
discoloration that occur, like, but she didn't. Uh, this bismuth line that occur is in this in the in the gums. Um, bismuth is a complicated uh, kinetics. It's multi-compartmental. The half lives have been reported to be anywhere from minutes to years. Although generally accepted, it's about 11 days, and so it slowly comes out. And so they're not surprised at four weeks that she still had bismuth in her system when they finally got around to testing both her urine serum and CSF. One of the few cases that did test CSF, there was an earlier case that had a CSF level of 340, uh, multiple times hers, but it was tested earlier in the course um, as well. Um, whether or not you could do anything about it, chelation is debatable. I'll say there are other studies that suggest perhaps chelators like succimer may be helpful in shortening that half-life, although we don't have any good hard data for that yet. Um, as far as the differential of could this have been a serum serotonin, serotonin syndrome from her low dose of lithium, um, she had negative lithium on arrival, and then really the fact that it lasted for 20 days pretty much makes it super unlikely that this was in fact a serotonin syndrome, was in fact a bismuth-induced uh, neuropathy. Uh, not stated in this article, but I've heard referred to elsewhere, elsewhere is that it really looks like high differential is Crossfield-Jakob disease because it's a multi-sensory motor, visual um, balance pathway that kind of hits all parts of the brain and therefore it's sort of a diffuse brain encephalopathy that occurs. Um, they don't mention the website which sold it, but I think all of us can probably guess uh, where that was that she purchased almost all of her supplies through a well-known marketing website and crude testimonials on it that says, I don't know why more people aren't taking this. This was like out, uh, out of, out of breath. It was, I should be giving this out like breath mints, breath mints. It works. Um, so there you have it with bismuth encephalopathy um, as yet another toxic metal to consider in your differential of altered mental status. Um, while we're still on altered mental status, a fascinating chronic metal that's out there was reported in a, a great case series in the New England Journal a few years back. We're going to have um, Anna, uh, Maria Miles tell us about manganese, number 25, atomic number. Yes, so I'm going to be talking about um, this article that was presented in 2008 in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it goes over a Parkinsonian syndrome in methcathinone users and the role of manganese. Um, a little bit of history, so methcathinone is a stimulant with euphoric effects, and cathinone itself is derived from the plant uh, named cat, and it has long been used as a psychostimulant. So methcathinone is manufactured by oxidation of ephedrine and pseudephedrine, and in home preparations, the IV formulation is produced with uh, potassium permanganate oxidation in the presence of acetic acid. So this study looks at uh, users from Eastern Europe in Latvia and Russia, and they found IV users developed this Parkinsonism um, and were positive for HIV uh, in Latvia. However, it was noted that they had very few uh, CNS HIV syndromes that would occur that were specific for Parkinsonisms in the absence of other symptoms, including focal infections. Um, so the role of HIV causing these symptoms was questioned by the authors as the underlying cause of their Parkinsonian uh, syndrome. And um, they 
had this movement disorder that was stereotyped between the individuals and it was unlike idiopathic Parkinson's disease and was associated with a distinct hyperintensity of the T1 weighted MRI signal in the globus pallidus. So the authors investigated the role of the toxic effects of manganese in these patients with IV methcathinone use. There were 23 patients that were identified with unusual stereotyped speech and gait disorder, and most of these patients were in their 30s with an average duration of methcathinone use of six years, plus or minus five years on both ends. Um, they looked at active versus non-active users and defined active users as those who had a binge within the last one year and non-active users as those who had discontinued the drug over the course of a year. Um, three of the patients that they found were actually HIV negative, and of the HIV positive patients, nine of the patients had AIDS. They also noted that all patients uh, of the 23 that they, they studied had positivity for hepatitis C. However, there's no known um, extrapyramidal disorder associated with a hepatitis C infection. So. Um, they hired, or they got a neurologist, and basically he did a detailed neurologic exam on all of the patients. He also evaluated them for their posture, their speech, their writing, as well as a number of other screening tests for Parkinson's, and they also performed a mini mental status exam as well. Um, all patients had pretty extensive lab workup, including HIV, CD4 counts, hepatitis C titers, copper, ceruloplasmum, and uh, MRIs performed. Patients who uh, were included reported their first neuro symptoms occurring uh, approximately six years plus or minus five after their first use. And their initial symptom in most patients was gait disturbance with hyphonia. Um, the neuro exam that most of these patients displayed, so they had an impassive face and generally slowed movement or speech reactions. Uh, the authors noted no tremors at rest, and they actually had quite a normal intellectual function, and only one patient had an abnormal mini mental status exam of the ones that were uh, looked at. Many patients showed a slight forward rock and a tilt of their trunk, and when ambulating, they noticed that these patients were holding their arms abducted to their sides, and they tended to walk on the balls of their feet. The most severe gait abnormality that they noticed occurred when the patients were walking backwards, which actually resulted in most of the patients falling except for one. And of the speech disturbances, uh, most patients were noted to have low volume, and they also had difficulty with handwriting as well. So they measured whole blood manganese levels on all of the patients and found it to be elevated in uh, nine of the 10 active users, and their mean average level was 831 nanomolars per liter. The non-active users had levels that were in the range of 300. Um, all of the patients had MRIs performed, and all but two had increased bilateral and symmetric T1 signal intensity in the globus pallidus on the MRI. All of the active users displayed this. Um, the active users also had intensity in the substantia nigra and the anominate of the anterior midbrain. And they also found that the non-active users had less intensity in the globus pallidus compared to the active users. In the non-active users, none noted substantial improvement in gait or speech after cessation of the IV methcathinone for two to six years 
despite them having found to have lower blood levels of manganese and less severe changes on their MRI. They tried uh, different uh, therapies for these patients and they found that administration of levodopa produced no discernible change in their symptoms of their uh, motor disorder. And they also tried chelation therapy, which is another you know, uh, therapy that's tried for manganese toxicity. And despite lowering manganese levels, they found that their symptoms were also not relieved by this. Um, manganese poisoning is typically seen in welders and workers in the metal industry who have toxic effects from inhalation. And these patients seem to have presented with similar symptoms as the cohort in this study. Um, the source uh, was presumed to be due to potassium permanganate that was used in the oxidizing ephedrine for methcathinone. And the authors also postulated that the amphetamine-like effects of the methcathinone with its stimulation of the dopaminergic terminals may have enhanced the toxic effects of manganese in the basal ganglia. So really interesting um, mm -hmm. to see you know, the toxicity that's associated with manganese in these patients and unfortunate no therapy that was there for, to help them out. Yeah, the story behind it is almost reminiscent of one, another toxic uh, event we talk about is MPTP, which was an uh, analog of Demerol, which was synthesized as an illicit opiate back in the Bay Area, a little bit in Washington, uh, essentially through a lot of sleuth work of a lot of professionals and neurologists and figured out that it destroyed the basal ganglia and it was really the metabolite of this MPTP that caused it. And Obviously, people stopped manufacturing it illicitly and mm -hmm. disappeared, uh, but it became a model for recreating uh, Parkinsonian syndrome. Mm -hmm. this, similarly, these people have this young people, although they all are IV drug users and uh, polysubstance users, and HIV patients have a similar severe early onset within a year of use mm -hmm. in some cases, but mm -hmm. sometimes five or 10 years of use mm -hmm. develop this, but all at a young age, all less than 30 years old. So, Something to keep in mind when people appear to have a Parkinson's syndrome and they are less than your typical age of an elder Parkinson patient. Uh, obviously, they need an MRI, and the MRI is, in this case, mm -hmm. the least as revealing as the other cases, less mm -hmm. so, where they have these bright uh, enhancements in their basal ganglia. Um, I guess if people call us and ask us what do we do, we can get manganese levels in their urine, 24 hour collection again. and. Uh, if it's elevated, I don't know if it correlates with disease, but apparently the users of former users have dramatically different levels. So yet another thing we might be called on for altered metal status with some specific constellation of symptoms that may be due to a metal on the periodic table of elements. We'll change gears a little bit. We'll talk about uh, some of the things that kids get into that can produce some toxicity. A couple of short articles here. Uh, with um, Anatoly, our emergency medicine residents going to talk about, first of all, barium, uh, number five atomic number, um, an interesting phenomenon we've seen a random case or two over the years. Yeah, so um, the title of this uh, case is Acute Barium Toxicity from Ingestion of Snake Fireworks um, by Heard et al. Um, out of University of Massachusetts. Um, they, so the case is a 35-year-old male, uh, severe mental retardation, uh, came in with vomiting diarrhea following ingestion of 16 small fireworks that were later to be um, identified as covered snakes or black snakes. Um, so this gentleman came to the emergency department, uh, diarrhea, severe vomiting. Um, he uh, 
his initial labs um, were notable for severe hypokalemia. Um, he was tachycardic. Um, otherwise, his vital signs were unremarkable. Uh, he had a leukocytosis, and he was hemoconcentrated. Uh, abdominal radiographs showed uh, multiple radiopaque fragments within the stomach. Um, based on this report, they proceeded to do whole bowel irrigation. Um, and uh, also with these fireworks, um, once they identified them, they were worried about arsenic toxicity, um, which had been reported on previously. Uh, so he was started on dimercaprol. Um, patient did not tolerate the whole bowel irrigation with, uh, secondary to continued vomiting um, and uh, was then uh, transported to an outside hospital. Um, while waiting for air transportation, uh, he developed a 90-second episode of VTAC, became hypotensive. Um, they gave him some fluids, uh, mental status remained unchanged, uh, so they shipped him off. Um, in flight, he continued to have wide com complex tachycardias, uh, but otherwise vital signs were stable. Um, upon arrival to this uh, tertiary cares uh, ICU, uh, approximately 12 hours post-ingestion, uh, patient was obtundent, minimally responsive to stimulation, was more tachycardic, uh, blood pressures were still stable, but he was now tachypnic. An ABG done at that time showed a respiratory acidosis with a pH of 7.03 and a PCO2 of 57. Um, he was put on a non-rebreather mask. Um, blood work was repeated. His hypokalemia had now worsened to 1.5 um, from the 2.1 he was on previously. Uh, magnesium, calcium, and phosphate levels were normal. Um, and then EKG showed uh, VTAC. He was emergently intubated and then given um, sodium bicarb boluses. Um, I think this was prior to them recognizing this hypokalemia that he had had, um, and obviously it, it did not have an effect on him. Um, he eventually did revert to a sinus rhythm with the left bundle branch block. Um, whole bowel irrigation was re restarted uh, with an NG tube now that he was intubated, um, and that he was given more dimercaprol for um, potential arsenic poisoning. Um, and then finally, he started. He received potassium, uh, so repletion was initiated. Um, heavy metal uh, screens were also sent off, as well as urine and serum barium levels were sent off. Um, his severe hypokalemia was addressed with uh, 238 millimoles of potassium chloride initially, and then he continued to receive additional potassium throughout his course. Um, during the next couple days, he developed uh, hypophosphatemia and hypocalcemia. Um, he did well um, later in his hospital course, developed aspiration pneumonia, was treated with antibiotics, and then was extubated um, on hospital day four. Um, when his blood levels came back, finally his serum barium level was 20,000, um, and then his urine barium level was 5,600. Uh, references, so the serum is 200, less than 200, and then the urine is less than 20. Um, and then his lead or his blood levels for the lead, mercury, and arsenic were all normal. So, um, barium toxicity um, hasn't has been um, typically presents uh, with uh, hypokalemia. You'll get cardiac dysrhythmia secondary to the low potassium. Um, these folks. Um,
can also have increased uh, lactic levels, um, lactic acid, and uh, this, these barium salts, especially the ones found in the fireworks, which are different than um, the barium found in oral contrast, are um, actually very soluble through the GI tract, making them more dangerous. Um, with this study, a couple of the key points that the authors talked about was um, the importance of uh, this, so you know, with these patients getting these rapid and severe hypokalemias, repleting that potassium, um, because that's where most of your clinical effects are going to come from. Um, and these folks are going to get large amounts of potassium. Um, monitoring uh, their other electrolytes as well is important. Um, but also monitoring for rebound hyperkalemia. Other reports um, have shown that even small amounts of repletion have led to um, hyperkalemia um, and symptoms associated with that. Um, this gentleman ended up doing well, um, was discharged out of the hospital and back to his home. Yeah, it easily could have not gone so well, you know, because yeah. people say, oh, you know, fireworks, it's not a big deal, and, you know, here he was about to code. His level, potassium level dropped down on one and a half. I think there was another case report with less well documented as far as levels of barium because mm -hmm. of hypokalemia of potassium level of 0.2. So the mm -hmm. profound hypokalemia when you see it is often due to these um, uh, barium salts that are found almost uniformly in uh, fireworks. Is it so. a dose effect? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, this guy in this case report ate a, ate a bunch. We had a case here last over the 4th of July, which is when we tend to get these, um, same sort of thing, they wanted to discharge uh, the kid and we said, no, get one more level just to be sure, and sure enough, the second level dropped to a reasonable, moderate hypokalemia, and I think he only had a, a couple of these fireworks devices that had barium in it. Um, I'm not sure if we got levels on him or not, but uh, uh, yeah, if you wanna write it up again, someone get some levels next time you see one of these. Mm -hmm. All right. Another interesting thing that kids get into, and this is one of the ones, this case was not a kid, but this is a, a big common one. Um, only I totally tell you about three cases of these neodymium magnets. Neodymium is number 60 on the periodic table. So this is a case series um, out of the Pediatric Archives, the French Journal. Um, by Limal et al. Um, in 2019. So they looked at three cases of uh, neodymium uh, magnet ingestion. Um, kind of just some history. 2% um, of ingestions, at least in, in their experience, have are uh, in pediatric populations are these magnets. And um, about two thirds of them uh, are multiple magnets, about another about two-thirds, um, end up being asymptomatic, don't need any intervention, um, roughly 20% need some type of retrieval, uh, endoscopic, and then less than 1% uh, end up needing surgery for these. Um, so for the first case, it was an eight-and-a-half-year-old boy who ingested two uh, spheres during a game at school, um, didn't have any symptoms was brought in to the hospital, had abdominal x-rays taken 24 hours apart that didn't show any change in the location of these magnets. Um, so a decision was made to go after them endoscopically. Um, they were unable to. 
grasped them. Um, they had gotten uh, stuck to each other on other side on opposite sides of a gastric mucosal fold, um, and this kid ended up needing a uh, gastronomy uh, to go in there and fish these out. Um, he did well post-op, uh, fed on day five, and then discharged on day seven. Um, another uh, is a five-year-old who had ingested 12 of these. Um, he did have symptoms, was compa complaining of epigastric pain, um, had some emesis. Um, again, x-rays did not show progression of these magnets um, after 12 hours, so the decision was made to go after them endoscopically. Again, uh, this too did fail, um, and they ended up having to go in um, and do a laparotomy to go in and fish these out. Um, he was also discharged on post-op day five um, after an uncomplicated recovery. Um, the third case is a 33-month-old um, that had swallowed five, and um, they uh, were not able to go in endoscopically um, and uh, ended up having to go in and do an ileocolonoscopy um, and uh, try to visualize them um, and were able to they had been arranged in a three plus two formation. They were able to kind of mess around with them um, with the scope and fish them out after they had um, gotten them in a linear uh, pattern. So three children um, all had uneventful courses. Um, two of them were asymptomatic. One had symptoms, the older one with the 12 magnets. Um, it's something that, um, so kind of some background, these have were pretty popular you know, seven years ago and then the government stepped in to ban them at least in the United States for a while there's been a lot of court battles with this um, now they are legal again uh, but I think a lot of education has been done about these um, in terms of you know, keeping them away from children um, but uh, you know obviously one of the, the biggest risks with these is you know, if you have more than one, they can get stuck to each other and they're not going to move if they got tissue holding them um, in place. Um, so, you know, they can try to go in endoscopically, but at least in these three cases, uh, two of the cases, they weren't able to do much. Um, the initial kind of algorithm still calls for, um, if, you, if they're within endoscopic reach, to attempt it that way. Um, if not, close observation and surgical, not consulta and surgical consultation. Um, for possible surgery, um, if need be. Um, now that they're legal again, we'll see if there's kind of a rebound effect um, in, because it, the number of cases and the morbidity has gone down um, after the ban, but now that they're back, we'll kind of see if we have more cases of these. Yeah, I'm not sure what prompted them to make them legal again. Um, I mean, I think they just slapped a not producing children toy kind of sticker on them as if that stops much, but it, that's probably the current status. Um, what people maybe not appreciate is that these neodymium rare earth magnets are like, have multiple times the potency of sort of the magnets that you may have played with 10 or 20 years ago. They can, what makes them particularly dangerous is they can get separated from each other if you take more than one as they migrate through your GI tract magnetize across loops of bowel, essentially multiple loops of bowel stuck between them and create a closed loop obstruction or area of necrosis where they're pressing against the bowel wall. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially if it's a younger child, he may not complain much or maybe nobody gets the story 
that they ate one or two of these because they were playing with some of these um, gets written off as typical pediatric GI gastroenteritis, get a popsicle, go home, and then you know disasters happen. So the, the trick is to diagnose them early, find out if they're playing with them, and uh, remove them if you can get them from above because that's the easiest way to get them out. And sometimes they need to use different nets, and sometimes they actually use, you need to put a magnetic probe down through the endoscopy. The, uh, an endoscopic channel there to get them out and mm. slowly burn the whole thing out together. But there's different techniques. Some perforate, and there have been some disasters out there. So this is a big warning, and especially as we head into Christmas and people buy toys and stuff, one we have to keep our awareness high for. Yeah, one of the disasters I read about was um, five-year-old that had unknown ingestion. Um, it was just one magnet. Um, but he ended up getting an MRI for some reason and uh, had a bowel perf when the magnet got plucked out. So, um, you know, obviously, you know, with any metallic object, that's a risk. But, you know, when they're, they look like toys, you know, it's higher risk of things like that happening. Yeah. So. And the toys come with like, like 100 or 100. Yeah, there's like 216%. Percent. So no one knows how many are missing when you get to that number, you know. Yeah. So it's like mm -hmm. having a total bottle count of 100 tablets and you All right, moving along to germanium number 32. Huh, tell us about Great. the problem with this. Okay, so this is uh, a paper out of uh, the Journal of Nephrology Dialysis and Transplantation from 1999. It's just a single case report um, by Luke et al. out of Germany, which is very fitting for germanium, um, which is, it's an ultra trace element um, that occurs naturally in really low concentrations. Um, so our, our case is a 58-year-old man whose chief complaint was nausea and vomiting and anorexia with a 10-kilogram weight loss over the last six months. Um, he's otherwise healthy, has no past medical history. Um, social history, he works as a manager of a small metal processing company. Uh, and notably, he had been taking a supplement that he had illegally purchased from a pharmacy and the supplement was a germanium lactate citrate compound. Um, and this is uh, a product that was, you know, kind of without any scientific evidence marketed as an antioxidant or anti-cancer, like immunostimulatory uh, type uh, medication. And so our patient took a total dose of this compound, uh, which was 426 grams over the six months. Um, and the germanium lactate citrate, that's about 18% by weight germanium. Um, so on exam, uh, he was noted to have a heart rate of 120, blood pressure was 130 over 80, he was afebrile. His exam was remarkable for jaundice and a cachectic appearance, and he was also noted to have kind of a uremic odor. Uh, on cardiac exam, he had soft heart tones and a pericardial rub and then was noted to have a 150 milliliter pericardial effusion on ultrasound. His chest x-ray was negative. His ECG just showed sinus tack. Um, and his neuro exam was normal, except um, they did an EMG on him and found uh, what they called pathological spontaneous muscular activity. It's kind of, it seems like a really broad category. I'm not sure exactly what they were describing. Um, and they also found that um, his perineal nerve had delayed conduction velocity. 
Um, so they drew a slew of labs on this patient. Um, in interest of time, I won't go through all of them, but I will say that he had an elevated ESR, um, but his white blood cell count was normal. He was also noted to have like a low RBC and um, low platelets. Uh, and they noted later in the case report that it was like a normocytic, normochromic anemia. And his urea was 22.6 millimoles per liter. Um, I'm used to seeing it in different uh, units, so I had to look it up, but a normal urea value in millimoles per liter should be between 2.5 and 7.1. So definitely uremic. Uh, and they also did an extended workup, like doing a bunch of kind of rheumatological type labs. They did a big immuno immunological workup, um, infectious disease workup, which was all pretty unremarkable. The only things they stumbled upon when they were drawing labs for him apart from his anemia and stud rate were uh, hemoglobin A1C of 11.1. Uh, he had previously not known that he had had diabetes. And he also had an elevated TSH, uh, 22.9 uh, milliunits per liter, but his T4 and T3 were normal. Uh, he had a high C-peptide and his urinary analysis showed proteinuria uh, at 200 milligrams over 24 hours. Um, and they did an electrophoresis test on this protein and found, they, they said it quote unquote indicated tubular damage. Um, they didn't go much beyond that, but they said that it was largely albumin and low molecular weight proteins. Uh, they asked the patient if they could do a renal biopsy because um, prior studies had shown kind of a consistent trend of renal failure in germanium poisoning. Um, although all of those cases were kind of muddy because they were all polypharmacy. Um, but the patient refused, uh, um, you know, like really any tissue biopsy. Um, they did find that his creatinine clearance was at 11 mils per minutes per minute. Um, and you would expect that to be, you know, over 100 for a otherwise healthy 58 year old man. Uh, he was offered dialysis. I, they didn't talk about logic, I assume kind of both um, for his uremia and also possibly um, for the intoxication itself, but he did not, uh, the patient did not want a dialysis. So he was essentially treated with IV nutrition, um, insulin, and electrolytes, um, and he received furosemide intermittently depending on his refusal during his hospital stay. Otherwise, they treated his nausea and he was discharged. Um, and at a six month follow up, they found that his um, TSH had normalized. His liver values had normalized, but he still was having nausea and vomiting. His insulin requirements had decreased significantly over the six month period, um, but they found that he still had pretty significant renal dysfunction with a creatinine clearance of 25 uh, mils per minute. And he still had um, the polyneuropathy. So they, um, they then kind of go into all of the data. They got pretty good sampling from him. They were checking his germanium levels in whole blood, serum, and urine. Um, and initially on presentation, he was found to have concentration of um, 4.3 milligrams germanium per liter in his blood, 3.7 in serum, and 13.4 in urine, which is very elevated. At normal levels, you'd expect to see it like, you know, like a under a thousandth of milligram per liter. Um, and they found that the serum and whole blood concentrations of germanium decreased rapidly over four weeks, and then the excretion slowed um, 
throughout the next six months. Um, and the same pattern generally was true for his urine measurement, but he did have two really significant spikes in germanium concentration at day 24 and day 31. Um, the researchers didn't have much of an explanation for this aside from saying that they suspect that this patient retook this germanium lactate citrate supplement at home on those days, um, although they also know that the patient denied that he had um, started taking the medication again. Um, so this, this case is interesting because, like I said earlier, it's um, really you know one of the few, if not the only, case of an isolated germanium poisoning outside of the context of like a complex past medical history and or polypharmacy in that patient. Um, and it's pretty consistent with the other literature that's published as regards to his renal failure and also thyroid dysfunction seems to be common in patients who've been exposed to germanium. Um, the authors also kind of say that they think his um, diabetes could be well explained by this because his insulin requirements dropped so much um, farther out from the exposure. Um, and then um, they also kind of mentioned that um, it's been noted in prior studies that uh, the nausea and vomiting kind of general gastroenteritis symptoms from uh, a germanium exposure uh, can last up to eight months following the exposure. So uh, it wasn't totally unexpected that at his six-month follow-up, he was still feeling nauseous. Um, and that's kind of where they left off. So. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting and isolated and indeed rare case of someone who's self-treating themselves with germanium, which rarely ever comes up, but in interestingly, it's available as a supplement. And he developed this sort of multi-organ system, renal failure with probably uremic pericarditis, I'm not sure that the geranium caused the pericardial fusion or was just part of his uremia um, that, and his diabetes that I don't know if that was just a de novo finding because he didn't seek medical care or whether that had anything to do. But again, a caution about supplements that are available over the counter. Some of these things you take on a long-term basis, like the bismuth we talked about, can certainly cause um, a variety of health issues to be thought of when people come in and call us because it's all the time this person's on this bunch of supplements can be responsible for their disease. Sometimes we gotta do a little sleuthing to figure out why. Uh, I'm gonna talk briefly about selenium poisoning, number 34, atomic number. It's an article written by our colleagues just north of here in Washington State. Uh, selenium is a, a trace element, um, but can be toxic. It comes in a variety of valences from plus six to plus four to metallic selenium at zero and then an oxidative state of negative two um, like sodium and hydrogen selenide um, depending on which formulation you have depends on how toxic it is the one that i'm going to bring up uh, as the most toxic that we hear about on an irregular but periodic basis is uh selenium poisoning due to selenius acid and selenius acid for those of you who've never heard of that before is what's in something called gun bluing. Gun bluing is something, I don't own guns, but it's to make your gun nice and blue and shiny silver, and it contains a combination of two to nine percent selenius acid and two to four percent copper uh, diluted in the acid. And really the compound that's really uh, pertinent here is selenium that causes a multi-organ system failure with very, very low doses and often fatalities. Mm. Um, Chronically, people who take selenium, like your case with geranium, 
for some sort of nutritional value, can present with brittle nails and white spots on the nails. And this is called selenosis with chronic selenium poisoning. This is a little bit more rare. But from a acute point of view, uh, the authors kind of go through all of the published cases in the literature and sort of annotates them. I'll mention a, a couple of those. Um, one was a 44-year-old worker uh, who was exposed to a erupting mixture of selenic acid and died 90 minutes later. Uh, another was a three-year-old, uh, sorry, 24-year-old male who drank 55 cc's of gun bluing and had ST changes, QT prolongation, uh, went into acute pulmonary edema and had selenium levels that were 7.8 and 11.0 micrograms per gram in the liver and kidney. Uh, obviously, those were obtained at autopsy. There are several cases of toddlers who ingested gun bluing, a 24-month-old child who drank a 9% selenius at the thing. He went into defib and died. A 40-year-old female drank gun bluing as a suicide event, became tachycardic hypotensive, had a cardiac arrest eight hours later. 52-year-old woman uh, with uh, had several commercial products, including 30, 60 cc's of gun bluing, Went into hypertension, low cardiac output, elevated pulmonary pressures, low peripheral resistance. Sounds like she had a swan GANS put in at the time. Uh, she got two doses of uh, dimercaprol for the copper component, but she also went on and didn't do so well and died. And then autopsy had acute pulmonary edema and central lobar hepatic congestion and elevated selenium uh, levels in her body. There were a few others that were all mentioned, um, a two-year-old with gun bluing, a 29-year-old gun bluing, a two-year-old with gun bluing, um, another one with vitamin supplementation that um, had symptoms, and um, another chronic one with supplements that had symptoms. But I think the take-home message for this is that uh, gun bluing is very dangerous. It causes this kind of cardiomyopathy, cardiac uh, failure, multi-organ system failure, passive hepatic congestion and can be rapidly fatal within literally an hour or two. There is nothing specific to be done except sort of extremely good supportive care on all of those cardiovascular. And our, I mean, I think our protocols, if a child gets into gun bluing, even if it's just suspected, it's like call 911 and get them to the hospital and get them transferred to a tertiary care center. Even if nothing happens, which sometimes nothing happens, uh, but had they got into as little as a few cc's or a gulp, it's potentially fatal. So it's one of those ones that make us sit up at night and worry a lot. And probably this compound shouldn't be anybody's home that's got children around because like many of the other products that worry about kids, there's no safety proof capping on gun bluing um, chemicals. Turning to two uh, last elements that are used as basically poisons, there's really no good reasons to use these things otherwise. First we're gonna talk about thallium and one of the options for treating it. Uh, so our visiting pharmacist, okay, so uh, I've got this article published in this open access journal, Medicine. It's the clinical characteristics and treatment of thallium poisoning in patients with delayed admission in China. Um, so um, as Dr. Horowitz mentioned, pr pretty much exclusively used for poisoning these days in its non-toxic elemental form. Um, it's um, a very pretty metal, but it does form these very toxic salts. Um, it has no taste, no odor, so it made a great rodenticide for a while, and, and now it makes a great poison. 
uh, there were a lot of cases back in the day when it was used for the treatment of syphilis and gonorrhea, um, ringworm of thalatoxicosis, and at that point they recognized that it was probably not a great agent. Um, this uh, particular metal it distributes, like some of the other ones we've talked about, very well. So it distributes through three compartments, and um, the symptoms are very diverse and nonspecific, again, like a lot of the metals that we've talked about. So uh, these patients tend to come in a little bit later than their exposure. So this particular study uh, is looking at how patients present and how they're treated depending on at what point they present post-symptom onset. It's a retrospective descriptive single-center study. It was at the Affiliated Hospital Academy of Military Medical Services in China, and it looked at a 10-year period between 2008 and 2018. Um, they excluded chronic thallium poisoning in patients with other poisonings, and then they divided their patients into those who came to the hospital within seven days, um, or patients who came in between 7 and 14, that was your moderate delay, and then a severe delay was considered 14 days or later. They looked at etiologies of poisoning, how they were exposed, their symptoms at onset, uh, admission, um, organ damage, um, blood and urine thallium concentrations, as well as some of their um, imaging, IEG, and finally the treatment methods that were employed for these patients. Um, so. Uh, looking at what they found, um, the majority of these patients were male. The average age appears to be somewhere around 40 years of age, and about half of their patients that they ultimately included were in that severe delay category. Somewhat predictably, the significant differences focused on the blood and the urine thallium, very elevated in early admission, and as presumably that distributed, lower as you move into the moderate and severe delay categories. Liver toxicity seems to be the most prominent of the organ injuries that these patients experience. GI symptoms, specifically abdominal pain and abdominal distension, tend to, tend to predominate early on in their study. And the neurological symptoms uh, increased as patients um, had more delayed presentations. So pain in the extremities, um, actually in all of their patients in the early, moderate, and severe delay categories. Hair loss was noted predominantly in the severe delayed category as well. Um, as far as the workup done for these patients, they uh, had a kind of scattered scattered workup in terms of who got an MRI, EEG, EMG. Uh, three patients had a obvious abnormal MRIs, and all those were all within the delayed admission group. Two of those had CNS symptoms on admission, which were confusion, deep coma, and then uh, one of them did have a personality change that was discovered during the follow-up period. On EEG, uh, four, um, four of the patients with an abnormal EEG had a severe delay. Um, and an EMG showed varying degrees of damage, and it did tend to be more, again, on that delayed presentation side. Uh, the treatments received by these patients included a cocktail of interventions, including stomach protection, I'm not quite sure what that meant for these patients, acid suppression, circulation improvement, nerve nutrition, protection of vital organs, pain relief, and Prussian blue where Prussian blue is kind of our uh, go-to exchanger for a univalent cation, so that'll interrupt the enterohepatic recirculation of thallium by exchanging potassium from its lattice for thallium in the GI tract. So all of these patients received Prussian blue, and um, 
some of those patients received uh, um, additional enhanced elimination modalities ranging from CRT to hemoperfusion to plasma exchange. Um, the, um, ultimately, none of the patients in the study died after treatment, and on their follow-up, one patient had personality change, one patient um, who was in a deep coma initially could, uh, did communicate normally after treatment, but couldn't stand independently at the time of follow-up. And uh, this patient did have, it looks like, persistent neurologic sequelae. Uh, all 31 patients did grow new hair one to two months after their discharge. Um, so this study uh, was a little bit different from other studies in how they grouped their patients. I thought it was a very, it was a fairly relevant way to uh, separate their patients, um, con considering the fact that often it is going to be a delayed presentation. Usually poisoning takes a little bit of time to discover. Um, in this case, uh, I thought most impressively, um, most impressively uh, that these patients all seem to recover fairly well with the exception of that patient um, who had pretty severe neurologic sequelae and that was with a variety of interventions. Um, it seemed consistent overall with what we know about thallium toxicity um, and I did, I was a little bit struck by the, maybe struck, maybe not struck by the high misdiagnosis rate. I think 50% of these patients had been um, diagnosed with Guillain-Barre um, which certainly falls within your um, spectrum of um, neuropathy, um, but I if I understand correctly, um, thallium does have preserved reflexes, which you may not expect with Gambari. Um, I think it's a tough diagnosis to make, certainly. unless you know that like Someone's... my neighbor poisoned me with yeah. thallium, and you know, then it becomes clearer. Yeah. Okay, so, and, and that's pretty much um, the summary of this case. Um, pretty much follows what we know about thallium toxicity and patients overall and their 31, their small, relatively small group did overall fairly well. Yeah, we, we've had the opportunity to work up uh, a case and it, same thing presented with a gait uh, ataxia and motor, distal motor weakness and distal peripheral neuropathy and I think there was some hair loss involved. It's good to know. It's, I thought it was a good study and a good presentation. Of, at least the only one I could find of a group of thallium cases, 34 cases. Most of the other are one-off kind of case reports that occur with many of the common symptoms that we talked about. There's onset of GI symptoms, which is often more constipation than diarrhea, hair loss that's slowly progressive, and then there's peripheral neuropathy and neurologic disorder. There is a chelator for this, which is good, or exchange agent, which is Prussian blue. At least in the US, it's a little hard to get. You have to call uh, REACS in Tennessee, which is like the, the nuclear medicine kind of clearinghouse for these medications. When we had a case, we were able to get a fair number from them, so they were responsive, so um, good for them. But it, it takes a long time for these folks to to get better. The big clue is, the big problem, I should say, is figuring out who poisoned them in most of these cases, because it's very tricky, and who has access to thallium in the first place, which isn't just available just about anywhere. So um, one of our stranger of intentional poisonings. But the strangest of intentional poisonings, we say for last, the worst of the best, uh, and that's polonium uh, 210, which is actually atomic number uh, 84. So Adam, tell us about the, all the details on this case. Very good, thanks Zane. Um, yeah, so this is a very, very interesting, biz frankly bizarre case, uh, and this is written up uh, in a paper entitled Polonium-210 Poisoning, a First-Hand Account, and this is by Dr. Nathwani and others, published in Lancet in 2016. 
And so this is really a case report with a lot of uh, both basic science and clinical science extracted from it. And it's discussing the uh, case of uh, Mr. Alexander Litvinenko, uh, who was initially a, a former Soviet um, uh, official who uh, defected and then came to live in the United Kingdom under an assumed identity uh, and was a, essentially living a, what I would guess would be a normal life as a, a Russian man living in the UK. Uh, until the uh, early mid-2000s when he had a meeting with a couple of KGB officers and shortly thereafter developed uh, profuse diarrhea, profuse vomiting, and uh, then presented to one of the UK's uh, accident and emergency departments. Uh, at that time, he was uh, continuing under the assumed identity and there was no suspicion that anything other than a very severe gastroenteritis had taken place. You know, his symptoms were all completely consistent with that, and why on earth would he suspect polonium poisoning? So uh, he was admitted, he was started on antibiotics, and over the course of the next week, he essentially developed uh, progressive symptoms, uh, even aside from the GI symptoms. In fact, his GI symptoms kind of improved, uh, but, then he, uh, but they did not improve adequately, and he started to develop essentially a pancytopenia with complete bone marrow failure. Uh, about a week into his course, uh, he was uh, presumptively diagnosed with C. diff uh, that was based on a stool uh, assay. And when his physicians told him that they were concerned about C. diff, he uh, revealed his identity because he knew that in the past KGB officials had attempted or killed people using C. diff. C kind of an interesting turn on its own. <laughs> so with the suspicion of C. diff as a method of assassination by KGB officers, he said, I'm actually this former you know, Soviet individual and I think I've been poisoned. And with that in mind, the uh, physician team essentially completely reevaluated his case, started to take into account the pancytopenia, his GI symptoms, uh, and continued to watch him. And uh, from that point, the differential completely changed. So kind of one of the really fascinating things about this paper is the discussion of the thought process, which I thought was absolutely um, fascinating. Um, so at this point, they're, uh, of course, they're starting to think about uh, exotic poison. So just, just a little background, this wasn't mentioned in this paper, but if you think of other assassinations by the KGB, it's bizarre enough that there are so many. Um, <laughs> we are thinking about, for example, uh, dioxin as one, very exotic, bizarre. Um, uh, ricin, you know, more recently the Novichok agents, and then apparently C. diff, which was new to me. So very dramatic, very bizarre, rare poisons. Um, and so they were starting to think about uh, thallium. At this point, the, uh, Mr. Litvenko was losing his hair, uh, although he did not have the painful uh, neuropathy that we'd expect for thal from thallium. Um, with uh, uh, pancytopenia, they were considering um, chemotherapeutic agents as well as, of course, radiation. And if you think about it, this is, you know, with that lens in mind, this is following the exact thing we read in textbooks about acute radiation illness. Starts with GI symptoms. Uh, and then a few days later, you get um, absence of lymphocytes and bone marrow failure. And uh, so at that point, they start uh, doing some preliminary tests. Um, they take a Geiger counter and they scan him with it. It's completely normal. So it's like, oh, obviously it can't be radiation, but as we know it is. Um, and um, kind of keep looking. They do a bone marrow biopsy, which kind of as expected shows uh, acellular marrow. Um, and then finally, on day 22 of hospitalization, they do a very specific test, which is they look at a sample of his, I believe it was blood, 
with a gamma camera, which is just a special instrument that picks up not uh, alpha or beta particles, but gamma radiation specifically. And they noted that it had this, this of course is new to, news to me, but an 803 uh, kilo electron volt photo emission, which is uh, fairly characteristic of polonium. And kind of based on that, they started uh, to actually look for it. So that's a, essentially a, radiograph, a radiological assay, but most of the tests we have in medicine are uh, chemical assays or spectro um, photographic. And so uh, at that point, uh, polonium was tested for and con uh, confirmed. Unfortunately, on day 23, uh, he developed essentially rapid uh, altered mental status, cardio cardiovascular collapse, and, and died. Um, so that, that was too bad. Um, they did a few uh, post-mortem uh, parts of uh, this evaluation. Uh, of course, now that it's confirmed that he's been exposed to a tremendous amount of uh, radioactive agent, uh, there were all sorts of considerations to be done. Um, so polonium is primarily an alpha emitter, although it also does gamma, which is how it was picked up with the gamma camera, but mostly it's alpha. So even um, a thin sheet of glass will block the alpha particles, which is one reason the uh, Geiger counter missed it, is because you know, a layer of skin is enough to block that. Um, so uh, they put a sample of the blood on radiographic film and also on, on a piece of glass, and the glass blocked it, um, where, whereas without the glass, the uh, radiographic film was developed. Um, and then they started um, looking at, uh, in autopsy, the amount of polonium that was concentrated in different or, uh, organ systems, uh, showing a tremendous amount of uptake in the kidney and the liver, uh, a, a tremendous amount in the bile with relatively less in muscle tissue and um, uh, delayed blood. So blood on day 23 was uh, less than half of what it was on day 20, but presumably on the initial days it was very high. Um, again, alpha radiation, you know, if you're holding it in your hand, I don't recommend this, of course, but if you're holding it in your hand, unlikely to become very ill from it because it just doesn't penetrate that much, which is probably what makes it easy to transport across uh, international borders and then get into a public space without triggering some kind of detection device. And also to carry it safely if you just have it in a, I'm presuming here, but you know, a little tiny lead pouch, that should be enough to keep you safe. Um, but once it's ingested, um, then that alpha emitter is in essentially in proximity with DNA, and it's going systemically, and um, unfortunately, it's quite lethal. Um, so this is the first and only confirmed fatality of this. Um, I'm speculating here, but that seems, if, if this is the first and only time this has been documented to kill someone, I have to assume that the KGB knew it was reliable, otherwise it seems like a pretty pretty big risk to send two agents to a foreign country and try an assassination attempt unless they were confident it would work. So I have no idea what has happened before, but again, you know, it's not unusual for the KGB to do these like very dramatic, very public, very rare, weird things. Um, so that's, that's all the medical clinical information we have on polonium. Yeah. Although they do reference there was a, a, a report in Russia of someone mm -hmm. who inhaled Mm -hmm. uh, an aerosol of polonium and died 13 days later, so they knew at least of that yeah. case. And, I, and I'm sure there's sort of a lot of research. And, uh, there's there's animal studies too, but yeah. Um, First-hand account of what happened with uh, Alexander Litvinenko, um, mm -hmm. and he suspected it after a week or so of being in the hospital and uh, basically self-diagnosed himself with yeah. being exposed to uh, this toxic agent. Um, you know, I'll say of the elements that we um, 
So, except for this last one, we've been <laughs> consulted on at least one or more cases of many of these. And so, um, you know, keep your, your eyes open for these as you hear of unusual presentations, thinking of medications that are on uh, the periodic table of elements is important. And so I think we will cut it off there. And uh, maybe we will. Uh, oh, wait, wait, wait. I finally got this. We will see if this works now. We'll talk about one more tiny thing here. So I was going to say no. Tribute to the periodic tab of table of elements is complete without uh, this song made famous by a Harvard mathematician in the 1960s. Um, definitely uh, one that many people growing up heard and probably pursued a career in science as a result of that. So here is uh, the elements as a tribute. Oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium and lanthanum and osmium and astatine and radium and gold, protactinium and indium and gallium and iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium and silicon and silver and samarium and bisulfromine, lithium, beryllium and barium. Holmium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and terbium and manganese and mercanium molybdenum magnesium dysprosium and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead praseodymium and platinum plutonium palladium promethium potassium polonium and tantalum technetium titanium tellurium and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, kryptonium, radon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. Yeah, so there is the famous uh, Tom Lehrer with his Elements song. All fellows upon graduation will have to sing that at the graduating <laughs> ceremony. We'll have to bring in an accompanist to, to do that. So until next time, the Horowitz and the Oregon Poison Center Journal Club podcast. Thank you. <laughs>